Almighty God, grant that we who have been redeemed from the old life of sin by our baptism into the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, may be filled with your Holy Spirit and live in righteousness and true holiness through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the uni- and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Okay. We are continuing in this discussion of the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we've just gotten to this wonderful section on the liturgy and on uh, the daily office. Um, I know that some of this may be new to some of you, and so, you know, if if anything becomes unclear, just please stop me. Um, We're on question 242, depending on which edition you have, the leather copies, if anybody has those or lucky to have those, I have one, Uh, but... uh, well, it's just question 242. I don't think the page, matters. the page members don't match up. By the way, these are bootleg copies that you have in gray. Don't let anyone know that you have them. They're completely illegal. No, <laughs> I had to have them printed because no one else would do it for me. Um, so we've been talking about prayer and, and most specifically the kind of ways of prayer. I'm talking about contemplation, meditation, personal prayer, um, intercessory prayer, and now we come to this section on liturgical prayer. So question 242, what is liturgy? Liturgy is the public worship of God by God's people according to an established pattern or form. Um, The word in Greek, leiturgia, actually means uh, work of or for the people. Um, it depends on your translation, but work, it usually is translated work of, work for, work of the people, um, meaning that the liturgy is the work of the people of God. Um, the other translation is work for the people, um, uh, which was a, a usage of the term uh, dating back a long time, um, which would be something uh, very much akin to like public works uh, in, in the civic sense. Um, Laeturgia would be the work of the, of the government on behalf of the people. Um, in this case, Christians often understood that uh, the work which they undertook um, in the liturgy was on behalf of the world, um, offering up prayers and supplications on behalf of the world. Um, but definitely, uh, we can say that liturgy is, no matter what it is, it's the public worship of God. Um, and it's according to, a, to an established form or pattern. Um, these patterns uh, are, are quite interesting historically because uh, some of the time, well, most of the time in the early church, there, there was no established form or pattern. Um, the form or pattern were all things that they had inherited, which would include things like what? Just to get started. What kind of things would you assume the first, first, first century Christians would say, hey, we must do when we meet together? Just essentials. Pray, okay, that's good. I'm glad that you got that one. <laughs> read scripture, yes. We're gonna, we're gonna definitely pray and read scripture. What else? We're gonna sing, yes. There's definitely gonna be some hymn singing, for sure. Um, Paul, in fact, says this, you know. Um, sing hymns together. What else? Eat, yes, we're gonna eat for sure. Um, and, and we know that part of this was that Christians had um, not only eating in the, in the communal sense, but, but eating in the sacramental sense. So there was certainly part in which um, bread and wine were consecrated in which they were, they were receiving the Eucharist together. And we know that very early on that got broken off from this larger meal 
um, to be its own liturgy. Um, and in the evolution of things, uh, we have written liturgies of the Eucharist dating back to the, third, to the fourth century. Um, a big part of that was that, um, you'll notice this if you listen closely to the Eucharistic prayer, the Eucharistic prayer includes this proclamation, in a sense, of the gospel. Um, that, uh, um, and, it, and, it, and it actually is quite thick. Um, these all came out of the public prayers of the bishops. Um, who would pray extemporaneously in this way. Um, and then when they realized that if they were ever going to get anything done, uh, they had to have others to pray the Eucharist for them, they began to write them down. And the particularly good ones uh, caught some steam. Um, so that led to this public liturgy of now we're going to pray these prayers, um, which are uh, apostolic prayers for sure. Um, these established forms and patterns get passed down through the centuries. Um, and it's really, you know, our, it's, our liturgy today comes from that. Um, so, in fact, if you really want to know the history, uh, the, the history of, of the English uh, Eucharistic prayers all come out of, um, out of the serum use from Salisbury in England. Um, and uh, these were translated out of Latin into English uh, even before the Reformation came into full swing. Uh, Thomas Cranmer, the, that great Reformation Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, took all those prayers and condensed them down into the Eucharistic liturgies for the Book of Common Prayer, and uh, they've been maintained fairly well through the centuries. Um, so the prayers we pray on a Sunday morning in the, in the liturgy date back, oh goodness, I would say at least 10 centuries, um, and in English uh, about, well, five. So you have that wonderful history there. Um, a great many things that we do on Sunday mornings, and I would say this especially about like the Gloria, glory be to God on high, that dates back to, we think, the first century. Um, Christians have been praying this particular, um, I always like to say that you know, the, the Gloria is like uh, the ancient church's version of, Lord, I lift your name on high. <laughs> it just is, it's so, you know, it, it got to the point where it's so popular that it was, it was like, we got to sing this every time. And it wasn't just done at the morning prayers, it was done at the morning prayers and then in the Eucharist and just over and over again. Um, so all of these things come down through the centuries. Um, you'll note that some of the words of the liturgy are taken directly from Scripture. So you have this wonderful uh, account of the Lord's Supper um, given in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it just is word for word repeated um, in that liturgy. Why do Anglicans worship with a structured liturgy? Anglicans worship with a structured liturgy because it is a biblical pattern displayed in both Testaments and because it fosters in us a reverent fear of God. Um, you might have grown up in a church where there was some fear of liturgy and uh, have no fear. We'll find the truth in Scripture, I'm certain of it. Uh, but we find that, uh, that not only did um, God's people in the Old Testament, uh, they were bidden to pray not only according to written prayers, but also we find that there were liturgical seasons um, in the Old Testament. And today, the Jewish people pray according to really what are liturgical seasons. Um, if anything, the ancient church simply was appropriating all of that culture of seasons. Um, this not only existed in, in Judaism, it also existed throughout pagan, um, throughout you know, the Roman Empire. There was these ideas of, hey, well, we have these feasts and we have these things, and, and why wouldn't Christians have them? Because they're good. <laughs> it's just all of this kind of uh, taking on. If it's good, we're going to have it. Um, 
But this last point I think is really important. It fosters in us a reverent fear of God. Um, the best example that I can use of this is that uh, uh, we're, we're in the midst of a, of a liturgical revision. It's, it's, it's grinding down. Uh, but one of the things that happened in the 70s is everyone said, well, let's not be so reverently fearful, shall we? <laughs> and like, you know, nobody should have done anything in the 70s, but here it was. They did it and, uh, and, uh, and we're kind of trying to roll it back a little bit. Uh, but here's the problem is things like this disappeared. In the confession, uh, there, was this, there was this wonderful repeating of, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us, twice. Um, and then people thought, well, that's too penitential, so we'll take it out. And in recent ACNA prayer book, prayer book revisions, there was only one, have mercy. And there was, some, there was some outcry over this. Like, if we're going to revise things and we're going to bring them back, then we need to have two have mercies. And I'm so glad they're there. Because I remember as a kid... Um, praying those in the old forms and thinking, oh, this just hits it. One's not enough. I need to do two. <laughs> because, because this part of the liturgy is so meaningful, and it, and it really does strike at me. You know, um, I, say, I say have mercy once, and I might skip over it, but I say it twice. I won't, I won't miss it. I won't miss it at all. Um, this reverent fear of God uh, is also, I think, um, engendered by... Um, language that you wouldn't ordinarily hear. Um, this idea that, that in order to be accessible, liturgical words have to be almost like street English, um, I, I don't find it to be terribly compelling. Um, and the reason I don't find it to be terribly compelling is that street English is not going to lift our hearts and our souls to God. Um, we, we have to be challenged to hear with new ears. We have to be challenged to... Um, to, uh, to raise the bar, so to speak. Um, another thing that I would say, too, is that um, if, if worship is just something that we recreate every single Sunday, then two things start to happen. One is I have to pull a new rabbit out of the hat every single Sunday. And I'm not a terribly creative person. So if the success of our church is based on my creativity, we're in a lot of trouble. And also, if if the success of our worship depends on my creativity, then we're in a whole lot of trouble. Um, the other thing that I'd say about that too is that uh, we realize very quickly that, um, that what we receive in the Lord's Prayer, which is a written prayer, right? Remember how we talked about it as the pattern and practice of prayer, this whole idea that you, you pray it and you pray it repeatedly and you, and you gain this practice of prayer um, because it's an established pattern. It gives you something that you can, that you can really lean on. The same is true as the, of the liturgy. Um, we human beings are very, very, very liable to fads. We're very liable to, um, to feeling like, well, maybe there's a better way. And, you know, that's not contested. There might be. <laughs> but, but that has to be a much slower churn, a much slower process. Um, and that's been the case uh, through the centuries. Do form and structure inhibit freedom in worship? No. Form and structure provide a setting for freedom of heart in worship. Um, well, think about this for a moment. What makes for a free society? Any political science junkies in here? There are at least some. What makes for a free society? Somebody said it. 
laws. <laughs> and you think, why do we have to have laws? Because we wouldn't be free if we didn't have laws. Um, we would be subject to the whims of, um, of uh, lawbreakers. Um, and we would also be subject to the whims of lawmakers as well. Um, the, the reason that we have laws, and the reason that in America we have law, we have government by the people and for the people, the idea is, it's one simple, one simple aim here, freedom. That's it. But freedom, we have to remember, is not the ability to do whatever you, whatever you please. What is freedom? Oh, we need some classicists. We, there must be someone somewhere. We must have some who know what freedom is. Yeah, it's the ability to choose the right. It's the ability to do what's right. Um, without anyone restricting that ability, without anyone uh, telling you uh, how you will do that, or, um, and, and without being bound up uh, to certain other pressures. Um, one of the things that I found incredibly freeing about uh, liturgical worship through the, through the decades um, has been that um, I don't show up on a Sunday morning freaked out that Father So-and-So is going to bring a new rabbit out of the hat and that I'm going to have to suffer through it. I mean, that already happens enough, right? Um, but, but the fact of that, um, even if you have someone who is rather flamboyant and rather kind of animated and dramatic, as we do here, uh, uh, it's maintained in a certain amount of control. Um, it keeps us from sort of floating away. Um, but the other thing that I think is really important is... Uh, that no one has to be particularly good at this. I mean, if we all showed up on Sunday mornings having to be experts, having to be great at it, um, we would fail. Of course, the other end of the spectrum is true as well, which is that um, if we all showed up here Sunday after Sunday and we were entirely passive, because worship was rather the, 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 the providence of experts, um, the worship would absolutely suffer. One of the great tragedies of modern American worship has been that people sit and they listen to a band play. And that's worship. Um, it's not worship. Um, it's listening to a band play. It's a concert. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, I was talking to an international student who was from India, and he, he had come here. And he had already come to America with this impression that America was all about rock concerts. So he's like, okay, America's all about rock concerts. That's all it is all the time. It's amazing. That's what I see on TV, and that's what I think it is. And so he went to church at a church in town, and it was like a rock concert. And he was like, okay, well, Christians in America, that's what they do. They, they go to rock concerts. And this was not his experience of Christianity in India, where uh, liturgical forms reign. And he had been uh, raised up through Catholic schools and Methodist uh, churches, and that was what he knew. It was very, you know, sober liturgical worship, <laughs> and, and, but Indian all the while. And he said some very profound things to me in the midst of this. He said, you know, coming to Christ Church a few times, it was so great to know that, that, that America was not captive to this culture of, of rock concerts. He also was very happy to know that, um, that, uh, that, despite vast cultural differences, there were things that different cultures could share liturgically. And that was very, um, he was very insightful about that as well. Not a Christian, but, but very insightful about that. Um, and I, I think that's really important, that it gives us the freedom to, to, to be culturally who we are, and yet 
share this liturgical framework. Um, so I've been, I've been to Anglican churches throughout the world, and there are things that you can just immediately pick up on, whether the liturgy is in Arabic or Spanish or whatever it may be. How does the Book of Common Prayer organize the liturgy? In the church's prayer book, scripture is arranged for daily, weekly, and seasonal prayer and worship and for special events of life. Most services include the Lord's Prayer. Well, that last sentence is emphatically true. Most services include the Lord's Prayer. We pray the Lord's Prayer at everything. <laughs> there are even directions, you know, like in a wedding, right? In a wedding, it's like, well, if you're not gonna have the Eucharist, then you must pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, I love those kind of directions where it says, well, then you have, the, 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 the must is the Lord's Prayer. You have to do that. Um, but um, we, we have some odd time right now because ordinarily I would say, look in the backs of the pews. There's a prayer book. Pull it out. Take a look at it. Um, you should have one at home, and, you, and, you, and, and hopefully by the end of the summer, you will, okay? <laughs> and you'll have a great brand new prayer book, and it'll be really good. Um, but the idea behind the Book of Common Prayer um, was this, and I'll, I'll kind of get into this a little bit. But it's this idea that, because um, the idea in the Reformation that, that Thomas Cranmer had was this. It was the renewal of a Christian England. Now you might say, but England was Christian at the time. What's the problem? He said, yes, I know, but it's the renewal of the faith in the people, and how do you do that? Remember, we're coming down off medieval Catholicism. Um, Things are not yet individualized, right? So the idea that you'd have any say in, in what you believe or what you do it was kind of odd in those days. Some people were saying that, but, but very few. It's this idea that um, we have to equip the people with, 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 um, with a world of prayer and with the liturgical world that the people can enter into um, because who decides what you'll pray on a Sunday morning? Is it you? A peasant living out in the country? No, not at all. What, who decides? Well, in, in these days, the king decides. The Archbishop of Canterbury decides. They send all this out. Parliament passed uh, um, articles of um, acts of uniformity, which made everyone pray according to the same forms. And you might say, well, that's very, that's very totalitarian. But, but they saw this as their job. And what they were taking seriously, and I think this is in their, in their defense, what they were taking seriously was the need to renew the faith of the people in that land. Um, and the way they knew to do that was by arranging scripture to make it work for prayer and to make it work for normal people. Um, because in the late medieval period, one of the things that had really sadly happened was that prayer was seen as the work of professionals. Um, if you really wanted to pray, what'd you do? You either became a priest, or you joined a monastery, or you did something like that. And um, the idea in the English Reformation was Christianity for everyone, serious Christianity for everyone. Um, so, shall we move on? And it's, it's arranged in this way, so there's, 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 there's the ability to pray daily. Um, but let's talk about the daily office. What is the liturgy of the daily office? The daily office consists of morning and evening prayer. These services are based on Israel's morning and evening prayer as adopted and adapted by the early church. In them we confess our sins and receive absolution, hear God's word and praise him with psalms, and offer the church's thanksgivings and prayers. Um, 
The daily office is the daily round of morning and evening prayer. You might say, well, why do you call it an office? Um, well, the reason is actually quite simple. It's that it, these are the official um, uh, acts of the church on a daily basis. Um, and in fact, for clergy in the Church of England and throughout Anglicanism, these are not just sort of like, oh, it'd be nice if you prayed morning and evening prayer. Every preface to every prayer book has always said the priest must pray morning and evening prayer in the church in a language understood by the people. Why would that be? Oh, well, in 1549, it would be obvious. <laughs> yes, 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 we know you have your breviary. You can do that on your own time. <laughs> morning and evening prayer out loud in the church, read the scriptures. Uh, that was the idea. Um, and, and it was a powerful one because it meant that uneducated, illiterate peasants, people who didn't have access to the Bible, could hear the Bible on a daily basis. Um, and as people became literate, the idea was you would pray this morning and evening, every day. Um, and many people, and I would say this, many, many people at Christ Church do this. Um, this is their daily discipline, morning prayer, evening prayer. Um, and you might say, that sounds like a lot of time. It is. It takes an hour of your day to do both. Um, but they find this to be a really important practice. Here's what happens in morning prayer and evening prayer. It's the same thing every time. Uh, we start with a confession of sin. Um, we move into usually some kind of canticle. Um, this is, all works very well with singing. If you're, if you're a type who likes to sing and sing hymns and sing canticles, then you're going to have a blast with this. Um, we also uh, hear uh, the Word of God re read um, and uh, this is a really, it's been an amazing thing here because in years past, I've had to kind of pray the daily office on my own and just sort of read the text. But here, I barely have to do anything. I show up in the church on a Tuesday morning and everyone's all ready to go. They've picked the Psalms, they've got everything in order and, and they read and they do it. And I get to hear wonderful readers read the scripture. Um, so if you want to experience morning prayer, here in the church, Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's at the Guttaker's house. We do that just to kind of keep that practice going. Um, and finally, we end with thanksgivings and prayers. And uh, at Christ Church, those are not only um, uh, prayers out of the prayer book, it's also we take time for intercession um, during those times as well. Who observes the daily office? Many Christians observe the daily office at church, in their homes, at the family table, or wherever they may find themselves. Um, many people do this. I mean, um, I can remember uh, uh, many times when I've gone to uh, visit someone in their house, and uh, we wake up, you know, it's like, it's Monday morning before a conference, and the conference starts at, in the evening, and I just have to be there you know, a little bit early. Uh, I remember that when I was living in California, I'd have to take, I'd have to take red eyes over to the East Coast. And so I'd wake up bleary-eyed on a, on a Monday morning or I'd get off the plane and, and my friend would say, have you prayed morning prayer yet? And I'd say, no. And he'd say, well, let's do it. <laughs> he'd literally, in his car on the way home from the airport, hand me a prayer book and a Bible. And there I would be, fresh off the red eye, having prayed morning prayer. Um, I also remember just going to... Um, the Global Anglican Future Conference in Jerusalem last summer, we got on the plane to go. There were a number of people going to that conference, and as soon as the sun came up, we were stuck in a plane on the runway at Ben-Gurion Airport, and I started watching people open their prayer books. Um, 
Now, I also noticed that all the Jews on the, on the plane were also busting out their prayer books. Um, and this was a, this is just a regular thing. Um, that uh, that this, is, this is part of this regular discipline. Now, it's fallen out of practice for a number of people in the church today um, because uh, one is just practicality. People say, well, you know, you can't give an hour of your day to prayer. I mean, how would you get things done? And I think the answer we should give is, how do you get things done without praying an hour a day? <laughs> and, uh, and that would be what Mother Teresa would say, I think. Um, well, I know she would. But we have to get back to, back to this, that... that um, our life does not consist in the sum total of our accomplishments. Um, our life consists in the glory of God and in giving him glory and in praying. Uh, the life of prayer is our life. Um, how do Anglicans pray morning and evening prayer? Anglicans pray the daily office, believing it to be a sacrifice that pleases God and because it keeps them aware that their time is sanctified to God. Um, there's something about praying in the morning really the first official thing you do. Um, you know, it's not really that great to pray morning prayer when you're still in bed and haven't brushed your teeth yet. Um, I actually recommend get up, take a shower, uh, get out of bed, get dressed, maybe get a cup of coffee, and then pray the morning, then pray the morning office. Um, because it's your, it's kind of, and I think this is really true, it's your first official act of the day. It's the first thing I'm going to do. Um, and let evening prayer be the last official act of the day. Um, so usually I say, well, I'm going to pray evening prayer right before I go home. That's how it works, usually. Um, and very often people say, well, we'll pray together as a family at home. But since we have little ones, it's very hard to kind of keep them going in the midst of it. But we're going to get there. Um, this idea of sanctifying our time to God is really uh, is really the idea, which is that um, if you go day in and day out and you just work and work and work and there's never time for regular constant prayer, what happens? Where, where does the meaning in your life come from? It comes all from work. So note what happens. What happens when pressures mount up at work and you feel like a failure? And you found meaning in work. Yeah, <laughs> you've lost your identity, um, and you become terrified. Um, if you are um, constantly feeling like you're not up to snuff in your labor on a daily basis, like things aren't getting done. Like uh, for for those of you in the academic world, my my publish I haven't been able to publish a thing. Why? <laughs> um, you start to have a crisis. Um, and, and this daily act of morning and evening prayer set aside the whole day um, to God's use. Shall we move on? Okay, so I want to encourage you that if, if I had a prayer book that, you know, in, in the future we will have them and, and we're going to teach everybody to use it. Uh, but, but the new lectionaries are very easy to use. Um, and I'll just kind of give you a little bit about them. Um, they follow a direct Gregorian calendar, so every day, you know, if it's March 4th, you look at March 4th, and there it is. That's the readings for the day. Um, and as I said last week, if you really follow this, you will read the Old Testament once a year. You'll read the New Testament once every three months. You'll read the Gospels every month and a half. You'll read the Psalter through every two months. Um, how's that sound? Yeah, it's great, right? I mean, this isn't just Bible in a year. This is like 
Bible constantly. Um, and the, the benefit there, too, and I think this is really key, is you're not trying to read the Bible cover to cover, broken up into small bits. Um, you're trying to read it so that you get a little bit, okay? Um, I mean, the way a lot of people read Scripture today is kind of like going to a, um, a buffet, you know, like a Luby's or something, and, and saying, you know, for the next three months, I'm going to go here every day, and I'm just going to eat from the salad bar. And then in three months, I'll start taking from the sides part, and I'll just eat that. And then for three months, I'm going to eat meat, and only meat. And then for the next three months, I'm just going to eat dessert. What do you wind up with? You're going to get a heart attack, probably. <laughs> but but what, you wind up with vitamin deficiencies. You wind up with all kinds of health problems because that, balance, that diet becomes imbalanced. Reading according to the lectionary will literally save your Bible reading. Um, it will keep you reading and it will keep you excited about it um, because it, it, it's not all you know, two chapters a day from Genesis. It's a chapter from Genesis, a chapter from Romans, and a chapter from the Gospel of Luke. And, and it accelerates that reading. Um, the other thing it allows us to do is it allows us to see deep connections between various portions of Scripture. So that's really important. All right, should we move on? Now we're going to talk about some of the prayers uh, in here. And I think, wow, we're doing quite well. What is a collect? A collect is a form of petition that collects the people's prayers. Over the centuries, the church has gathered its most cherished prayers to mark times and seasons. They are embodied for Anglicans in the Book of Common Prayer. All right. So a collect is, is a prayer that uh, appears in, in our prayer book, but they're actually, in many cases, quite ancient. In many cases, they come straight from the Reformation, and in many cases, they're more modern. Um, but these are written uh, to sort of collect the prayers of the people um, directly before hearing the scriptures. So you'll note here at Christ Church, we stand at the altar. Um, the priest turns around, says, the Lord be with you, and you say, and with your spirit. And he turns back around and prays that collect. That's that little prayer. Um, and, and in the old days, when you had one lectionary that you went through every year, this made a lot of sense because these, the prayer directly related to the readings. Um, now, sometimes that happens here, and it's really great if you can catch it and you can say, oh my, it hit the right the readings, that was great. Um, but sometimes it doesn't, and you just have to be disappointed. Um, but the, 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 the reason for all of this is that um, we set out um, to, um, to mark the time with, with these changing prayers. Um, so, great example would be in Easter, great season of Easter, it's 50 days, um, wonderful collects for Easter. And what do they all point to? The resurrection, of course, right? They all point to the resurrection. What about collects for Lent? What do they point you to? Penitence, repentance, fasting, uh, uh, enduring temptation, um, during Christmas, what do they point to? It's all the incarnation, constantly the incarnation. Do you see how it works? And what this does is it, it builds this balanced, again, a balanced diet of prayer. Um, 
And we, and we have these kind of things in American Christianity that we sort of take for granted, right? I mean, evangelical American Christianity is very focused on the cross. Would you agree with that on the whole? And should be. That's a good thing, right? Crucicentrism is a part of what it means to be an evangelical. Um, can we often neglect other things? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We neglect things like the incarnation. We neglect things like the resurrection. We, elect, we neglect the ascension. Um, but the colics keep us in prayer focused. Okay? So uh, what happens is the colics change every Sunday. So we get a new collect every Sunday, and that's the collect for the week. Um, and then the other thing that we also have is collects for various uh, feast days. Um, so, for instance, uh, coming up next month will be the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th. Why? Three, you know, nine months to Christmas. <laughs> so, so we speak of the Annunciation, the, the announcement of, of the Incarnation, uh, and we commemorate that on March 25th every year. And, and so Lent will literally stop in its tracks. We'll have a feast day. The college will change. It will be all about the joy of the Annunciation. And then the next day we resume with Lent. Um, because, because all of this stuff just marks out this time. And, it, and it's a way to say, look forward to it. It's coming. It's coming liturgically. All right. Why use the prayer book when you have the Bible? The Book of Common Prayer is saturated with the Bible, organizing and orchestrating the scriptures for worship. It leads the church to pray in one voice with order, beauty, deep devotion, and great dignity. I love this. This answer is just magnificent. First off, the Book of, the book of Common Prayer is anywhere from 80 to 90% direct quotations from scripture. So think about that for a little while. It's, it's, it's arranged. Um, and, you know, I, I think there are certain parts of the scriptures that are very well suited for prayer. Would you agree with that? I mean, the Psalms are very well suited for prayer. But I think as we pointed out a couple weeks ago in that wonderful question you had, sometimes the Psalms get a little dreary, right? They get a little, uh, you know, imprecatory. And, and you're talking about wanting to beat up on your enemy, and that's you know, occasionally very good for you, and it's healthy to do that. But, but can that be daily? No. Um, so, so they're arranged. And I love how this says it. The Book of Common Prayer is saturated with the Bible. And in fact, I would say that uh, the book of the, this prayer book teaches us to pray in the language of Scripture. So that's important. Um, it also organizes and orchestrates the Scriptures for worship. I love these two words. This is, this is classic catechesis language that I just completely adore, and the guy who wrote this is just magnificent. But he said, is organizing and orchestrating, these double O's. Well, what, what does organize mean when you organize Scripture for worship? Well, just like I said in the, in, the, in the lectionaries, right? The lectionary organizes Scripture for worship. Um, the other thing that I'd say it does is that uh, there are certain things that we pray more often that are scriptural, um, like the canticles, daily repetition of those scriptural sections. Um, but this orchestrating is really, really key. Um, think about an orchestra for a second. Anybody, anybody play a really unique instrument in high school, like the oboe? Do we have any oboists? Oh, we do. Good. There's always one. <laughs> you, know, you have the oboe, and you have all these woodwinds, right? And then you've got what else? 
oh, you've got all kinds of brass and strings, and you've got timpani players, and you've got all kinds of, you know, all kinds of people. And one of the problems of musicians is the musician always wants to kind of stand out, right? They, they, they want to be the loud one that's heard, and you know, they're trying to make sure, this is more true in junior high and high school orchestras, you know, they want to make sure their grandparents who are visiting from out of town hear them play you know, the third uh, violin part. Okay. What's the job of the conductor of the orchestra? bring harmony to it, right? Um, make sure that all of those sounds get heard at the right volume. Make sure that they're all at a good rhythm, right? Um, a good conductor does this. Um, and this is really what happens in the liturgy, I think. Um, more, and, and sometimes it's more successful than others. Um, but it allows us to, um, to hear at the right volume, the right things at the right time. Um, so, at Easter, you know, you hear a lot. Um, in, in daily office at Easter, I always love this, you know, daily office and on Sundays, we read from the Acts of the Apostles in Easter. Why? Oh, because we're drawn to remember the power of the risen Christ in the church. Um, an amazing thing to, to ponder and think about during that time. Um, we also don't get what can often happen in a lot of places, which is, you know, I'm the pastor, and my favorite book of the Bible is Romans, so we're going to do circular, you know, constant exposition of Romans until you guys get it right. We're just going to keep going, and when we reach chapter 16, we might stop, or we might not go to chapter 16, we might stop at chapter 9 and go back to chapter 1. Because I'm the decider, I get to decide. Um, here, I'm not the decider. Um, we, we take it up, um, and, that's, and that's what comes out. And it leads to this great balance and harmony. And I hope that you've appreciated that. Um, um, I've grown up with it, so it sort of uh, can often be taken for granted. Um, but I hope it's not for me as well. What is a rule of life? A rule of life is a devotional discipline in which I commit to grow in grace as I resist sin and temptation and to order my worship, work, and leisure as a pleasing sacrifice to God. Having really talked a great deal about prayer, we now turn to one of the great tools of, of the spiritual life, which is that of a rule of life. Um, has anyone heard of a rule of life before? Okay, there are a number of you who have heard of a rule of life. This is good. Um, this word rule uh, actually comes from uh, the, the Latin regula, um, which is probably much better understood as a, as a kind of plumb line. Um, you know what a plumb line is, right? You know what I'm talking about? You read Ezekiel? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and what does the plumb line do? They're very helpful. Has anybody set up fence posts recently? I know one of you has and you want to get them straight, right? Well, in order to get a fence post straight, what do you need to know? Not just what straight is. You need to know which way is down, right? So what do you do? You take a weight, you put it on the bottom of a string, and you drop it, and that tells you what down is. 
um, lest anyone's concerned about that and doesn't know which way down is. But here's the problem. Can you sitting in this building tell me which way east is right now? It's Waco, so it's really hard, isn't it? Everybody point which way they think east is. Okay. Only some of you know. <laughs> Only some of you know. Uh, and and he, so here's our essential problem as human beings. If we try to determine east by our hearts, where are they going to go? All over the map. But if we have a rule or a compass, or then we'll know which way is up, which way is down, and which way is east. Um, think about this almost like a... Uh, like growing tomatoes. Now, I've grown some tomatoes successfully in the past, and I know what it takes to grow tomatoes successfully. What's the main thing you need in addition to water and good soil? Aha. You need a trellis. You have to have a trellis. Um, if you try to grow tomatoes trailing all over the ground, what will happen? They'll rot, for sure. So you have to have Something that tells that tomato plant which way up is. A rule. Um, this rule of life is a devotional discipline. It trains us. Um, and we commit to grow. To grow in which way? You might think up. So I have to know what way up is. Um, to grow in grace as I resist sin and temptation in order, and to order my worship, work, and leisure as a pleasing sacrifice to God. All right, let's say a little bit about what this looks like practically. Um, a rule of life is a deeply personal exercise. I can't tell you, sitting here, as a, uh, and I often do spiritual direction with people at Christ Church, I can't tell you what that rule of life is going to look like, really. Um, it is a, there's a kind of art to it, and it takes decades to get it down. Um, and it might start off very detailed and become less detailed over time. And it might start off very loose and get more detailed over time. It might look like a complete mess. And it might be really, you might need some insight. It might also start off looking like, wow, you are, a, you are an eager beaver here. <laughs> like, you're going you're gonna to do, and, and then what happens? Oh, it's an utter failure, an utter failure. Um, because it's too much. Um, so the rule seeks to discipline this life with what you have, um, and uh, it's a deeply personal thing. And so one of the things that I re really recommend to, to anybody starting off with a rule of life is, is to do this. Look at, look at your daily life, those things that are expressly daily, right? Like uh, there are things we do every day without even thinking about it. Like what? We brush our teeth, we drive to work, we, you know, do this, that, and the other thing. We make dinner, we, you know, uh, if we're parents, we get the kids ready, we, uh, we change diapers, we do all those things. Uh, and, and we do them without fail, right, most of the time. Um, we have some flexibility about them, for sure. You know, if I burn dinner on the stove, then what do we get to do? Now we're having pizza tonight, kids. Congratulations. Uh, but, it, but there's some flexibility, right? It, it's not like if I burn dinner, I'm a horrible failure and, well, Sometimes I could be that way, but but it's but it's you get some you get some margin built in, right? Um, so in a rule of life, I constantly say, think about the things that you want to do in the spiritual life every single day. There's got to be a daily element to it. 
Also think about things you want to do weekly or that you need to do weekly. Um, this, can, this can often seem completely obvious, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's as obvious as, I will attend church every Sunday without fail, even when I'm on vacation, and even if I happen to be an astronaut, there will be something that I do, right, in the midst of that, right? I will have Sunday worship no matter what. <laughs> That's just the way it's going to be. Count me in, right? And you write it down. And there's something about writing it down and putting it, you know, someplace where you'll see it on a regular basis that will remove all doubt as to what you are supposed to be doing on Sunday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. Got it? It's either we're in church or we're getting ready to get there, right? There's no question. Um, and that'll be true just as much um, while you're on vacation as when you're doing anything else. Um, this discipline is very key. Um, also things like um, I want to regularly examine my conscience. I want to take a look, a deep, hard look at what have I done wrong this week? What have I, where have I been rude to people? Where have I been mean to people? Where have I not exercised love and charity and patience with my neighbor? Um, where have I dishonored God in my life? Then finally, things like monthly and yearly. Um, you know, uh, I found that um, if I wanted to make sure that my hair didn't get long, I had, to, I had to basically be that guy who puts in, get a haircut on my calendar every first Monday of the month, or it wouldn't happen. Now I just do it myself because it's not worth paying somebody to do it. Uh, but, but it's just, it's, you've got to do it. It's got to be a discipline. Um, I also came to be the kind of, you know, doing things like getting oil changes regularly. Right? You just have to write it down, and if you write it down, you'll do it. Um, the other thing that I'd recommend be a part of a rule of life is a thing, uh, is a personal retreat. Um, we wouldn't think about that as being something that will train us in discipline and train us uh, uh, for holiness, but oh my goodness, a retreat is necessary. Um, we have to get away sometimes uh, to hear God speak to us, uh, to be available to, um, to his voice. Um, so all of that can be a part of rule of life and, and is very important. Another thing that I'd say, too, before I go on too long, and we're going to have to wrap up now, and we'll, we'll pick this back up this coming week, um, is things like how you're going to do your work can wind up in a rule of life. Um, if you're particularly prone to gossip among your fellow employees or colleagues, um, sometimes the rule of life can say things, I will not gossip with my colleagues. Or I will say only positive things to my colleagues. <laughs> And I will not do this. Um, you might even get to the point where you say, I will not engage in shameless self-promotion in my work. Um, you might say something like, um, uh, it might be that you work in an industry where, or a job where it's very easy to uh, sort of get involved in some, some seedy things. Um, Perhaps it's padding certain parts of the books. Maybe it's, you know, you never know what it might be. And you just say, I will not do that. It's in my rule of life. <laughs> and then, then that's it. Um, and you don't worry about what your boss says because you've got it written down in your rule of life. Um, a couple more things just to keep in mind. One of the big things that often gets in the way with the rule of life is that we all have various duties that, that are particular to us. Um, 
a great example would be, um, I'm a father, right? So I have, I have a job to do, right? Would you agree with that? I've got certain things that I just have to do. And I can't sit around and say, yes, 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 son, I know you have a poopy diaper, and I know you've had a poopy diaper for 30 minutes, but I am praying now. <laughs> so go do something else, right? Listen, a rule of prayer is not meant to make you a, a horrible person, <laughs> right? It's not meant to make you a mean father, right? Um, it's, meant, it's meant to make you a more charitable person. And so when you get thrown off, you can do things like, okay, I'm just going to stop and change the diaper, go back to what I was doing. It's not a big deal. It's okay. Um, duties of state are very important. Um, and it's important that we recognize that there are times when our state of life requires more of us than it would, other, than it would ordinarily require of us. Um, and so a great, another great example would be, you know, if I've known people through the years, and, and, uh, and I may be this myself someday, where, uh, where our parents are hospitalized for long stretches, or they're in uh, homes for long stretches, and, and you think, how can I find time to see my mother and pray? Well, write it down in your rule of life. You say, this is important, it matters to me, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to do it every day, or I'm going to do it every week. Um, and I'm going to keep up those prayer disciplines. You can do this. Um, part of the problem with the, mo with the modern world, and I'll, I'll close here, and Charles Taylor talks a lot about this, um, is that we wind up stretched out in a million different directions because there are a million different things vying, vying for our attention. And one of those things happens to be God. Um, and so we get stretched out. And we think, well, I can't have it all. I can't do it all. And you're right, you can't. So what do you do? You prioritize. <laughs> and you say, these things are going to have to fall by the wayside, and these things are important. And, and, and God is the only good uh, to be pursued for his own sake, and therefore he will be pursued. Um, and next is my family. And then next is this. Next is my academic career. Uh, next down the line is, is all the other stuff I want to do, the house renovation, the, whatever it may be, right? But that rule will, and this is what I, how I really want to end up, that rule will keep you from being stretched out, and it will direct you. It will direct your affections, and it will direct your joys, and it will, it will ultimately direct your loves. Um, so there it is. We will pick up next week. We'll finish up with the rule of life. We'll talk a little bit about spiritual direction, and then maybe we'll head into the Ten Commandments section. This is going much faster than I anticipated, uh, so uh, that's that. I also want to say to all of you that um, we are beginning to prepare for confirmations, uh, which will happen on the fifth Sunday of Lent this year, which is not ideal, but it's the day the bishop wanted to come. Uh, so I think he wanted to see Christ Church outside of Easter for some, for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, but... We'll, the confirmations will be uh, done then. Um, if you're interested in that, please let me know uh, or let Christy Butler know, and we'll get you on the list. Uh, if you have been baptized and you've been in this class since August, uh, you are eligible to be confirmed. There's, however, no pressure in that direction at all. Um, but confirmation is essentially this. It's the laying on of hands by the bishop where the bishop prays for the increase of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's it. That's what confirmation is. Um, it's not becoming an Anglican officially, uh, although you might say, well, I kind of think of it that way, and wouldn't that be cool? Okay, fine, that's your deal, <laughs> but it's not what confirmation is. Um, uh, you might think, wow, I'm really joining Christ Church. Well, uh, you may have already done that, um, but, but, uh, 
But I want to encourage you to, to consider this um, as, a, as, a, as a sign of commitment, not only to uh, this parish and to uh, the, our way of life together, uh, but really more a sign of deep commitment to God and, and his purposes in your life. And so uh, consider that and then let me know. Thank you.